Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What kills more people every year in the United States than gun-related homicides and motor vehicle accidents? Prescription drug overdoses. According to the Center of Disease Control, the United States saw half a million deaths from overdoses between 1999 and 2019. Joe Biden has made fighting the opioid epidemic a top priority. There have been movies and documentaries made about the devastation that opiates cause. Overprescribing of opioid medication is a major public health problem. And opioid use is much more common than you think. Despite evidence from trials and guidelines recommending against the use of opioids for osteoarthritis, about 20% of people with osteoarthritis take opioids on a long-term basis to manage their pain. Are they helpful or are they potentially harmful? What can you do to minimize the risk from taking opioids? On this episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Eddie Langford to discuss this critically important topic. Hello, Eddie, and welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. I really appreciate your taking time out of your busy schedule, post-PhD and traveling in Canada and all, to have a chat with us about this really, really important topic. But before we get into talking about opioids specifically, just wanted to learn a little bit more about you, if that's okay. Uh, can you just tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? Sure. So I am a pharmacist. I did my Bachelor of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney uh, in 2014. And then after registering, I went on um, to work in a hospital setting as a hospital pharmacist. And then after one year of working, my honours supervisor from my undergraduate degree approached me and wanted to see if I was interested in coming back to do a PhD. 
and the PhD project that was proposed was related to optimizing opioid use. And I was really interested in that. I thought it was a really topical area. There's a lot in the media about um, opioids and their impact on, on health more broadly. Uh, so I was really interested in going back and working on a project relating to that. So I began my PhD in 2019. And as you mentioned, I've just, just finished up last week. Wonderful. Now, when you went back to do the PhD, was that full-time, part-time? Were you working as a pharmacist at the same time? And I guess within that question, try and embed a little bit about what motivated you, what triggered you to want to go back and do further work in the university. So I did continue working clinically throughout my PhD um, at one of the hospitals in Sydney. And I think that was a really nice balance for me doing the PhD as well as working at the hospital, because I think the topic of my PhD was quite clinically focused in terms of looking at opioids. Uh, so the research side of it really helped my clinical practice. And at the same time, working as a pharmacist in a hospital, it was quite clear that there was a lot of patients who had potential difficulties with managing their pain and also accessing effective pain medications. Uh, so there's a lot of conversations with patients about their opioids, the side effects they're experiencing from them, uh, difficulties in managing their pain whilst taking medicines such as opioids. So I found that component really interesting and really wanted to look at ways to optimize pain management and look into better ways to help people manage their pain. So I think my clinical role really informed my research and vice versa. Yeah, I think it's a it's a wonderful opportunity there where you have that clinical interface, hopefully to help motivate you to continue to do such an important thesis topic. Do you think that helped along the way with regards, you know, obviously it's at times during a PhD, it can be a bit of a slog, but do you think that clinical interface helped to motivate you along the way? Definitely. And I think that's probably what sparked my interest in this research project in the first place. But also just, I think, in terms of, you know, enjoying what I was doing, having that sort of two distinct aspects was really nice, quite refreshing to spend four days working hard on the PhD and then have an opportunity to go into the hospital and, and do something a little bit different and, and see what your work might actually be working towards the actual clinical implications. So yeah, it was a really nice balance. Yeah, I think having uh, researcher clinicians, clinician investigators, whatever you want to call them, uh, be involved in the coal phase, so to speak, where you're actually interfacing with patients is so, so important. But before I digress too much further, again, just in the interest of uh, probing a little bit more about you, but when you're not doing your day job, what do you like to do? Well, one of my favorite hobbies is playing field hockey. Uh, so I grew up playing hockey and I still love doing that. And I play for a team at uh, the University of New South Wales. Um, so that's, that occupies a lot of my weekend. But my other sort of favorite thing to do, I guess, is just going home and visiting my family uh, who live just west of the Blue Mountains. So it's a really beautiful part of the world, quite scenic. So I, I like to head home there and, and visit them too. Wonderful. And are they in a town, on a farm? On, and how close is it to the bushwalks that are around there? Uh, so it's in a town called Hartley. So it's sort of the, the first little town once you exit the Blue Mountains heading west. It's sort of a valley. And we have a smallish property, so we don't have a farm per se. No animals. Well, my dad always likes to say he has one head of dog and one head of cat on, on our farm. But, yeah, so it's, it's a nice part of the world. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world and presumably on the way to, to Lithgow or Bathurst, is it? 
Yes, yeah, just before Liskers. But you're right, there's a lot of beautiful bushwalks and things around there. Wonderful. Now, Ali, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? <laughs> I find this question really difficult. I think the first one that came to mind was indecisive. I'm a really indecisive person. Like if you ask me, what do I want for dinner? I'm that person that, that can't decide. So that's definitely one of the first ones. Uh, but I think probably other words to describe me would be quite chatty. Um, I, I, I like to chat a lot. I think I'm quite a happy person and quite approachable, which I think is maybe an asset for, for the type of work that I do as a pharmacist. I mean, I think a lot of people like to chat about their medicines, which is great because I like to too. I don't know how many words I've said there. I think I've done about three or four. Four. But not, not, that, not that I was counting. Okay. I, I don't know if I can think of the last one. That's probably just me being indecisive again, um, circling back to my, my first one. It's all good. So if you're, if you're in a restaurant, it just takes you a long while with the menu or do you get the waiter back on a regular basis to change your mind? I definitely don't change my mind. I just take a long time to decide, yes. Oh, well, it's good to mull over important decisions like that. Yes, that's... That's looking on the bright side, yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we digress too much further, obviously today's topic is a critical one for people who have osteoarthritis. Before we bury ourselves into osteoarthritis per se, it's probably good to mm -hmm. just learn a little bit of the landscape. What are opioids and what are they used for? So opioids are a class of medicines that are often used for pain management. And many of the listeners might be familiar with some of the common generic or brand names of opioids. So things like oxycodone, a lot of people might know the names oxycontin or endone, things like fentanyl, norspan or buprenorphine uh, or codeine. A lot of people might be familiar with codeine, especially here in Australia, as that was an opioid that used to be available over the counter, um, recently has been upscheduled to a prescription only medicine. But basically, these medicines, as I said, are used to treat often moderate to severe pain. And then there are some opioids as well, too specifically, that are used for, uh, not for pain relief, but for opioid maintenance therapy, for people who have opioid dependencies. Uh, so I suppose that's another indication for the opioids as well. And how, how commonly are they used? I mean, you, you're obviously seeing a lot of this in the pharmacy, but how frequently are they used across the population? Quite commonly, and there's been quite large increases in the use of opioids over the last few decades. And I think the reasons for that are sort of multifactorial. In the United States of America, they often use the term the opioid crisis, and they attribute a lot of the increases in the opioid use to uh, marketing from the pharmaceutical companies, um, as well as I think in the late 1990s, there was a real push to sort of see pain as what they call the fifth vital sign and, and making sure that really address pain management um, and provide people with adequate pain relief. And so that also saw huge increases in the use of opioids. Uh, but I think specifically in the um, osteoarthritis population, about 20% of um, uh, people with osteoarthritis use opioids long-term, I believe. So quite a substantial amount of the population. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously an incredibly controversial area. And as you mentioned at the outset, very, very topical. And we'll provide a couple of links for people who want to dig into that controversy a little bit further in the show notes, particularly around the role of Purdue, the manufacturers of OxyContin mm -hmm. and the Sackler family. And a recent video that's been made 
uh, highlighting some of that controversy. But again, I digress. And so obviously, 20% of people who have osteoarthritis appear to be taking some form of opiate, whether that be regularly or at least intermittently for the management of their pain related to the osteoarthritis. What does the evidence say in terms of guidelines about whether we should or shouldn't use opiates? Well, I think there's quite strong evidence that opioids have quite significant harms or potential harms related to their use. And I believe over 80% of people who are using opioids long-term experience uh, adverse effects from these medicines. And they can range from quite mild side effects from things like nausea and constipation to quite severe side effects like respiratory depression, which can lead also cognitive impairment, which can contribute to things like falls um, and of course, death or overdose from opioids. So of course, those side effects are of concern. And that coupled with the fact that there isn't really strong evidence for the ongoing benefit of these medicines in chronic pain conditions. So when looking at opioids compared to both placebo as well as other non-opioid therapies, there isn't significant benefit in terms of pain and function. So I think the difficulty arises when we don't have good evidence for the benefit, but there's quite strong evidence for the harms of these medicines. We really should be re-evaluating their appropriateness of use in individual patients. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really critical point that you've highlighted there. And so just, I guess, just to reinforce that, the guidelines at present highlight the fact that the harms outweigh the benefits. And whilst they may have a role in acute pain management for longer term pain management, they don't appear to be helpful and potentially, as Ali just said, quite harmful. When you're using opioids longer term, does it alter a person's pain perception, sensitization, and are they likely to be problematic in and of themselves as far as the person's pain experience is concerned? Yes, definitely. I can't say that I'm an expert in this area, but there is uh, sort of emerging evidence about this concept of opioid hyperalgesia, where the central nervous system, as you mentioned, becomes sort of sensitized to these medicines and perhaps pain perception may even be increased when using these medicines long-term rather than the whole purpose of opioids is to effectively reduce pain, uh, but that may not be the case uh, in terms of this hyperalgesia. Yeah, no, it's such an important point because I think, you know, whilst a person might start it for acute pain management, for example, post-surgery, such as joint replacement, uh, perpetuating it longer term is likely not to be particularly beneficial and potentially both harmful in terms of the harms that you expressed, but also potentially in terms of increasing their sensitivity to, to that pain experience. Mm-hmm. Um, now, from the perspective of guidelines, we've touched upon this a little bit, but there are a range of different options that are available to people uh, who have osteoarthritis. What do they say about opiates per se? So I believe in Australia, opioids are not recommended within the osteoarthritis guidelines. Um, And I think more broadly, yet really emphasizing to restrict opioid use to acute pain conditions rather than using them long-term and focusing on the use of non-pharmacological pain management strategies in preference to opioids. Yeah. And obviously there's some variability there. As Ailey suggested, the Australian guidelines recommend against the use of opiates the American College of Rheumatology guidelines, which have relatively recently come out, are somewhat equivocal based on some feedback that they had from patients who'd been on long-term opiates and derived a benefit. Uh, the European guidelines recommend against it. So there, there is a little bit of 
controversy and inconsistency there in the guidelines, but in general, most guidelines don't recommend their long-term use. Now, we've recently had a paper that's come in through osteoarthritis and cartilage looking at opiate use or analgesia use more broadly, but opiate use in particular in and around the time a person has a hip replacement. Ailey, you were kind enough to to look at that paper for us. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what they found and I guess the implications of being started on it and potentially perpetuating its use? Yes, definitely. So as you mentioned, David, this article looked at both non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines or NZs as well as opioids and looked at their use both pre-surgery and post-surgically and looking at the, the rates or the consumption of use. And overall, this study found that there were quite a large proportion of patients, both who were taking opioids prior to their surgery um, and also people who were non-users or, or weren't taking opioids prior to their surgery, who were still found to be taking opioids months after their procedure. And I suppose this is of concern in osteoarthritis because a lot of people undergo their hip replacement to hopefully improve their condition and reduce their pain. However, if they're still taking these potentially harmful medicines months and months later, there's an increased risk of ongoing harm. So I think that's of concern. Uh, And I, I suppose in this article, the issue is sort of twofold because initially we have people who were taking opioids prior to surgery. And I think that sort of just demonstrates perhaps the difficulties of coming off opioids once you're taking them, but also for people who weren't taking them prior to surgery, it makes sense in terms of what we were talking about, about opioids being used for acute pain, that someone may be taking these medicines directly after surgery to help manage their pain, allow them to mobilize and recover. But if that then transitions to long-term use, I think that's where it potentially becomes of more concern. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great summary of a really important paper and I guess really highlights the fact that once it starts, as far as the prescription is concerned, sometimes it can be challenging to get people off these medications, primarily because they do have that addictive potential and it's really challenging to withdraw patients. So you started touching upon it and it's work that you've really been focusing on in your PhD, but what work is being done to, I guess, reduce the potential for harm and reduce the consumption of opiates per se? So here in Australia, I think we've largely taken a regulatory approach. There's been quite a few initiatives to try and reduce the overall rates of prescribing of opioids. And a few that come to mind is firstly the Therapeutics Goods Administration in Australia, the TGA, in 2020. So a few years ago, they made some regulatory changes in terms of pack sizes that were available for opioids to be purchased and prescribed in. So traditionally, we would have larger boxes, say maybe you get 20 tablets of Endone in a box, whereas they restricted that to the standard size being 10 to try and reduce the amount of opioids that were out in the community. And they also updated indications for what could be subsidized by the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and basically tried to restrict the indication from using opioids for chronic pain conditions. So that was really a push to try and make prescribers reconsider prescribing opioids long-term for chronic pain conditions. So that was quite a major regulatory change. But we've also seen a range of other strategies, such as the institution of prescription drug monitoring programs, and they're being rolled out in every state in Australia and are also uh, used in many countries overseas to flag people are going to multiple pharmacies as well. And these prescription drug monitoring programs help to identify people who may need 
additional support or who may be using their opioids not as prescribed. Yeah, it's obviously an incredibly controversial area and uh, complex as well with regards both regulatory interventions, but also in interventions that can be applied to individual people who want to come off opiates as well. But before we get to that, and I'm probably remembering this incorrectly, but a substantial proportion of people who start using opiates do so by virtue of picking up a pack uh, that's been prescribed to someone else that's just stored in the shelf at home. I can't remember the actual term for that, um, but it's a substantial proportion of people who go on to long-term opiates start that way. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it makes sense if you're at home and you're experiencing significant pain and you know there's something in the cupboard that perhaps a family member received after a surgical procedure or something like that. I think it makes sense that people are seeking pain relief and may use those types of medicines or approaches. But I think, as you said, it's of concern. Is divergence maybe the word that that you're looking yeah. for. I think that's something that is often used about trying in, in terms of the strategies of trying to reduce the actual amount of opioids out in the community so they're not being used for a purpose that they perhaps weren't prescribed for initially. Yeah. No, it's such, it's such an important topic. Now, Ailey, you've done some wonderful work looking at some of the barriers to opiate deprescribing and, you know, from the perspective of health professionals, what they can do. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that you've identified in the work that you've done? Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, David, we did two studies, one with healthcare professionals and one with people taking opioids to try and find a little bit more about what the barriers are to conducting opioid deprescribing. Well, that's the term that we've used throughout some of my research work, but in essence, it's about reducing the dose or discontinuing opioid medications. Um, And I think a lot of the challenges there are related to the lack of effective alternative options for people who have pain. Uh, So opioids may not be the best option, but perhaps a lot of people feel that there isn't another alternative that can, say, replace opioids and effectively manage someone's pain if opioids were to be deprescribed. And I think coupled with that, um, a lot of the evidence suggests that things like multidisciplinary pain clinics can be really effective in terms of improving pain and function, as well as reducing opioids. However, some of these services are not very accessible for consumers because there's really long wait times to get to see someone in a public pain clinic. People might have to travel quite far distances to be able to access these types of services. So I think that's a huge barrier to reducing opioids and improving pain management in Australian society. I think some of the other barriers, as you mentioned earlier, opioids are a symptom-modifying medication, uh, so they are directly impacting the person and their quality of life and their pain and function potentially. Um, And so that can be quite hard to deprescribe compared to a risk-modifying medication. So if you were taking something, say, for your cholesterol or or to reduce your risk of having a heart attack in future, perhaps some of those medications are easier to stop. Uh, And opioids on top of that have this component of physical and psychological dependence as well, which really makes the withdrawal process more complicated than, than some other medications as well. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously incredibly challenging for people who are on long-term opiates, trying to identify alternatives to being on an opiate mm-hmm. for their pain control, but also getting adequate support from the healthcare professionals that are looking after them to support 
them through that process. But just really encouraging people who have osteoarthritis, who more than likely shouldn't be on long-term opiates for the management of their pain, to think about what those other alternatives are. And obviously, we've spoken a lot about exercise and physical activity and weight loss and, and bracing and shoes and other options that are available to you. So please examine them because there's plenty of other alternatives. But I think another key point that I'd really like, Ailey, for you to highlight is some of the patient-friendly resources that might be helpful in ensuring people get through this process as smoothly as they can. Can you just allude to some of what they might be? Yes. So there's a lot of consumer advocacy organizations that have really great resources. So Pain Australia is one, and they have a section on their website with information about opioids and pain management. So that's a really great resource. MPS Medicine Wise is another one that comes to mind. They've done a lot of work uh, doing educational resources for both patients as well as healthcare professionals and have some tools that can be used collaboratively between the two groups. So they have, for instance, some tapering resources where you can come up with a tapering plan between the patient and the healthcare professional and identify sort of goals of therapy and ways to go about achieving them. So NPS Medicine Wise is another great website that has a whole series of opioid-related resources that might be useful. Tremendous, Ali. And what we'll do is we'll include a link to those resources in the show notes so that for people who want to access some of that really important information, they can do so easily. Now, Ailey, moving on from opiates and just probing you and your insightful mind a little bit further about some really hopefully important topics, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? So I've had a bit of a think about this one, and I think the answer stemmed from a lot of the work that I did throughout my PhD uh, in guideline development, because I really realized the importance of stakeholder engagement in developing guidelines. Uh, so for a bit of context, when the guideline is developed, we have stakeholder input throughout the entire process, whether that be defining the questions that the guideline is going to be asking. We have consumers on our guideline development group, and then the guideline goes out for public consultation. And we had many, many organizations and governments provide comment on the guidelines and individuals. And it was this feedback that really made the guideline a lot better and really made it, I think, applicable to the people who it was intended to be used for. So in light of that, I think it's really important that patients and members of the public speak up and are able to articulate their needs and what the challenges are related to their particular health condition. So I think it's just so valuable if patients can become really involved in their own healthcare and really be able to, as I mentioned, articulate to their prescriber or their healthcare professionals um, what their challenges are, what their goals are, what their needs are. And I think this communication uh, can go a long way in terms of providing positive patient outcomes. One of the things we noticed in our studies that we did with healthcare professionals and people taking opioids was that both of them were really reluctant to talk about opioid deprescribing. The healthcare professionals were sort of afraid that if they brought it up, it may have a negative effect on the therapeutic relationship. And patients were also concerned if they brought up the idea of opioid deprescribing that perhaps their prescriber would uh, disallow them from ever taking opioids again or, or they'd be left without any pain management options. Uh, so there was sort of this taboo topic that no one wanted to talk about. Whereas I think if 
both sides can come to the table and discuss these concepts quite candidly, um, there's really the opportunity then for shared solutions to be developed. So this has been a long-winded answer, but I think overall, if I could change one thing, it would really be for patients to be able to better advocate for themselves and express their needs to, to better the health outcomes. Yeah, it's so, so important. And oftentimes, that, unfortunately, that really important consumer perspective doesn't get heard and or is not adequately listened to. And so mm. I really just to strongly echo what Ailey's just saying there. Critically important that we hear from consumers. Now, Ailey, you're really, I guess, fresh in your career and mm-hmm. hopefully at the forefront of both learning, but also disseminating knowledge, particularly the important knowledge you've learned in your PhD. But how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things? Yes, as you mentioned, David, I classified as an early career pharmacist and an early career researcher. And it's quite apparent to me how much I don't know. However, after submitting my PhD, one thing my supervisor says to me is that you're now an expert in this area, which feels a little bit odd. But in terms of keeping on top of the current research, I have a large multidisciplinary guideline development group that supported me throughout my PhD, and they are all actual experts in their their respective fields. We have other pharmacists, pain specialists, addiction specialists, physiotherapists, methodologists, a huge range of individuals. And they are really great at keeping me up to date with the latest knowledge or publications in their field. So I love receiving emails from those types of people to keep me updated. Uh, But also in my clinical role, the hospital, we have a lot of mechanisms to uh, further our education. We have a program in the pharmacy department called Continuing Education, where each pharmacist does a presentation on a weekly basis. And that's great to learn about new drugs that come onto the market or new indications for use. And also at the hospital, I think similar to many hospitals, we have something known as Grand Rounds, where a certain department presents an interesting case or, or something novel. So that's also a great way to to keep my knowledge clinically up more broadly than just my my personal research area as well. Yeah. The beauty of doing a PhD is that it allows you a good few years to dig into a topic with great intensity. And, you know, I mm. I think it's fair to give you the the app descriptor of expert, particularly as it relates relates to that topic. But I think everybody, hopefully, particularly working in academic circles, always feels that there is more that they can learn. And, you know, I think that uh, particular descriptor that you gave to yourself is something we should all hopefully be applying to each other. Now, why do you do what you do, Ailey? What's your primary motivation here? I think my primary motivation might be slightly different for my clinical work and my research work, but I definitely think they are connected. In terms of my clinical work at the pharmacy, I just really enjoy my interactions with patients. I think when people are in hospital, particularly, which is the setting where I work in, people are often quite unwell or not quite at their best. They might be scared or worried. And I think some of the small interactions that I have with patients sitting down and talking about their medicines, hearing about their background in their life, I find really rewarding and I really enjoy those aspects of my work. And then I think the sort of second side is I quite like challenges and the concept of problem solving. And that happens a lot on a daily basis. In my pharmacist role, you're often identifying discrepancies in what's charted 
or identifying medication-related problems and trying to kind of find a solution to that. And I think that translates into my research work because more broadly, uh, my research is looking at how do you find a solution to quite a complex clinical problem such as the, the harms of opioid use. So I think trying to nut out potential solutions to these very complex issues, I find really interesting. And so I think that, that motivates me to uh, keep doing the research in the area that I'm working in. Oh, well, if you allow yourself to get distracted for any period of time and you want to lend your inquisitive mind to osteoarthritis, which is a complex problem, I think everybody would appreciate a good solution. So please feel free to digress <laughs> at some point in time. I'll keep uh, that in mind. <laughs> Ailey, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? I think this is a really hard question. And a billboard is hard as well because what's the purpose of a billboard? I think it's to sort of have, have a really clear message as someone's driving by. So even though it sounds kind of a bit lame and generic, I was thinking something like be kind because I think Something like kindness is lacking sometimes in, in our healthcare systems. And I think it is always appropriate and always effective. So I think something quite generic and broad like be kind is what I would put on a billboard. Oh, I think it's a wonderful advice and hopefully more people will take notice of exactly what you said. So in, in closing, Ailey, is there one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people who have osteoarthritis? I think tying back into my previous comment about patients advocating for themselves, I think that is the advice I would give to patients as well. Speak to your prescriber about opioids if you are taking opioids longer term and really let them know what your goals and preferences are in terms of deprescribing. And I think this is really important because in my interactions with patients, there's a lot of fear surrounding deprescribing. People think that if they trial dose reduction or cessation, like they may never be able to go back on opioids again. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what that may mean for their quality of life, for their paying them for their function. But deprescribing isn't always just a one-way process. It's not about trying to take something away from someone. I think it's really about trying to optimize someone's health by reducing the risks of harms related to opioids and also there, there is evidence that pain and function can be maintained or improved when opioids are withdrawn. So again, I think communication is key and for the best successful outcomes, I think people need to discuss with their healthcare professional what they want to achieve from their therapies. So I think that would be my advice. Voice your concerns, voice your preferences, and hopefully you can work collaboratively with your healthcare professional to come up with, with a shared solution. Such a great way to close because it's, you know, this is such a complex problem and I think people often feel unsupported in that process and there's no reason mm. for them to do so. So Ailey, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us. Go and enjoy Toronto and good luck with wherever your academic and health professional life takes you from here. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much, David. Thank you so much for listening. Based on studies done in the community, many of you are likely on opioids for your osteoarthritis. The purpose of this episode is to give you pause, to think about what the merits of opioids might be, but really importantly, their potential harms. There are plenty of alternative treatments for osteoarthritis that have a better balance between benefits and harms than opioids. We'll provide some links 
in the show notes to give you more information about opioids, suggestions for deprescribing, and the other useful links that Ailey mentioned. I'm really hoping that this information is helpful for you. As always, please discuss your treatment choices with your treating healthcare professional. And between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourself. And if you have the chance, someone else as well. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.